It's back to school time in the Gem State, and once again, Idaho Public Television will be televising classroom lessons for free during Classroom Idaho on our Create channel, one of our five free broadcast channels. Additionally, many cable providers broadcast the Create channel in your area. Classroom Idaho's Fall 2020 session is taught by Gem State teachers and is aligned to Idaho content standards. Grade school modules K-6 through will air weekdays from 8 to 3, and PBS Home Learning for grades 7 through 12 every afternoon. Mondays and Fridays, we will broadcast English language courses at 3, college and career classes at 4, followed by PBS Home Learning for grades 7 through 12. Our mission is to provide standards-aligned instruction for all Idaho children during this time of need. This will ensure Gem State students have access to educational materials, regardless of their access to broadband internet. For more information, visit idahoptv.org slash classroomidaho. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Parents, students, and teachers aren't the only ones affected by school closures. This week, we talk about ripple effects felt throughout the community and what state and local organizations are doing to combat those effects. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, I speak to Robin Findle, owner of Kids Choice Child Care Center and Preschool, about how school closures and homeschool pods are affecting daycares. Then Chantel Liskey, executive director of Safe Passage in Coeur d'Alene, discusses the rise in severity of domestic violence and child abuse cases. But first, on Friday, Governor Brad Little announced that the state will restore $99 million in funding it had previously cut from public education. The money will come from CARES Act funds. In addition to the unprecedented $122 million we already put towards schools this year, today I'm announcing that we will direct an additional $99 million in relief funds to public schools completely restoring budgets that school districts had set for this academic year. Over the summer, I worked closely with the Trump administration and our congressional delegation, emphasizing the need to support public schools. U.S. Treasury just updated guidance last week, I believe it was Friday evening, giving states more authority to use federal corona relief funds for COVID-related needs and public school budgets. And we did not hesitate to seize the opportunity to support our schools. The governor also said that families of public school students will be eligible for grants to help offset the economic impact of parents and guardians having to reduce their work hours or quit altogether to accommodate online learning and blended school schedules. I'm also glad to announce that we're making $50 million available to Idaho families as part of our new Strong Families, Strong Students initiative. When school districts across the state abruptly closed schools last spring, our workforce took a hit. Families continue to face many challenges, 
as they rapidly adapt to changing circumstances in their children's education. Many Idaho parents have had to quit their jobs or reduce hours, and many incurred personal expenses to cover the basic education needs of their children. When parents have to step in to provide instruction and equipment due to school-related closures, we see them pushed out of the workforce, something that strains our economic rebound. The new Strong Families, Strong Students Initiative helps ensure parents are less likely to exit the workforce or expend hard-earned household resources in order for their children to receive the education they deserve. We will offer parents $1,500 per eligible student and a maximum of $3,500 per family. The Strong Family Strong Student Funds will be made available to eligible Idaho families in October, and we'll be sure to announce when they can start applying. The $50 million and $1,500 grants will cover about 33,300 students. That's roughly a tenth of students enrolled in Idaho's public and charter schools. It's not yet clear exactly who will be eligible for these grants or how the state will prioritize those applications, though the governor mentioned using the money to help families address the achievement gap and digital divide. When responding to a question about whether the state would offer any CARES Act funds for higher education, the governor acknowledged that there isn't enough money to address all needs. I mean, everybody's suffering from this thing. You know, I, I, I would love to make everybody whole, uh, but th that's just not going to happen. It's just uh, uh, the, the most important thing we can do is restore the economy, get people back to work, uh, get uh, kids back in schools. If I can do those maintain healthcare capacity, get people back to work, get kids back in school, a lot of these problems will be uh, a lot less. Long before Governor Little's announcement on Friday, families across the state were already getting creative in attempts to accommodate online learning or blended school schedules. For some, that meant setting up so-called learning pods or homeschool pods in which a few families pitch in for a tutor for their children and share teaching responsibilities. There are plenty of pros and cons to these setups. While it limits the potential for COVID-19 exposure for both students and teachers and allows for more one-on-one -on -one learning opportunities for kids. Some educators are concerned it will exacerbate the achievement gap we already see in schools. And then there's the question of where these tutors are coming from. Earlier this week, I spoke to Robin Findle, owner of Kids Choice Child Care Center and Preschool, about how online school and learning pods are affecting daycares and what she's worried about in coming months. Thank you so much for joining us today. Staffing was already an issue at daycares. Can you talk about what the situation was like before the pandemic started? Well, before the pandemic started, it was you know a struggle to have staff come in. Um, we've noticed over the past couple of years that people are actually getting out of the childcare business as far as um, as a career path. So we've tried, we've struggled and we've tried really hard to make it a career path, working with our state as far as, you know, offering um, degrees that they can achieve and CDAs. And even with national accreditation, 
they completely changed their standard when it comes to teachers or teaching. And it used to be they wanted, you know, a bachelor's and associates. And now they've actually, I don't want to say they've lowered their standards, but they don't really ask for that anymore. They're more of asking us as providers to um, bring these, bring people along to become teachers. Does that make sense? So, so they're putting <laughs> so, the onus on you to do the training as opposed to providing a framework for workers to be qualified to do this. Right. So they want us, that correctly? Yeah, they want us to bring teachers along. They, you know, so when we hire somebody, it's our responsibility now, or our job, I should say, to um, bring them along to become, you know, uh, to get their associates or their child development associates or their bachelors and get them more interested in this career path. It's just, it's only because it's such, it is a low paying, low wage um, job. So. And how has that been working out for you, be training up teachers as you go? Um, it wasn't too bad. We've been doing pretty good with that. A lot of my girls here and, and some gentlemen, um, they've received their CDAs. I think they like, you know, it doesn't cost them anything. So we're able to do that for them for free. Like I said, through like Idaho stars and um, it, they, so they don't have to take in that extra um, school loans and things like that. Um, and so before it was kind of motivating and we had things going and it wasn't as bad as it is right now. So yeah, let's talk about right yeah. now. I, I know that a lot of uh, families are looking for teachers for their learning pods. How has that exacerbated your staffing situation? That has made it really difficult. They, there's a lot of places that um, a lot of teachers have now gone into an in-home situation to become a nanny and work with the children that are, even though the parents might be working from home, they need that one-on-one -on -one with the online schools. And a lot of parents, now that they are working from home, they're hiring um, a lot of our teachers. And um, so it's made it really difficult to have people come back um, into this okay. industry now. When you say they're hiring a lot of your teachers, how many are we talking? Like 20% of your staff, 30? I would say on the average, talking to other centers, um, at, I would say about 25%, which is, and they're usually our good teachers, but if they can make the same amount of money working for working with only one or two children, as opposed to working with a group of nine or 10, it's a lot less stress for them. And, and it's like, yeah, let's do that. I worry that once this pandemic is over and schools start going back to, you know, become in session and parents start going back to work. Now, where are these workers, you know, where are the teachers going to go at this point? And my other concern is that I feel that we're pushing childcare at this point underground. And that's a little disheartening too, because then you have the problems of, you know, who's being held accountable you know, are they taking their trainings or do they have their CPR and first aid? You know, everything that we require, um, they're not, you know, we, who, who's holding them accountable for that. So they don't right, have to a, do a private tutor for a learning pod isn't required to take child CPR, or infant CPR. Correct. Or take any trainings that are offered through the state. Um, so that's a little, you know, scary for me. To me, it is. Um, for our, for our children, for our youngest children. 
And let's talk about the children who are still in your daycare centers. Do parents expect your staff to help out with their schoolwork, if, whether they're doing online school or have a part in person? So for the online school part, that was a little bit confusing for us to begin with. We really had to decide, first of all, we're a preschool. Like a lot of our childcare centers go from infant until pre-K, and a few of us have the after-school program. So some centers, you know, we're not equipped to take on the public school system, and um, we're not equipped for having these children come to us with their computers and and help them with their schoolwork and things. And what we have found is we we are trying to accommodate our parents because their younger siblings are there and we, we need them to come to our centers, but how do you staff all that? How do you supply everything that they need? You know, the individual workspaces, um, boosting the Wi-Fi, and Boise School District and West Ada, which I can speak to for both of those because both my centers are in those districts, they had Boise School online school and then they had the West Ada had the virtual schoolhouse. So a lot of my parents who are concerned about sending their children to school this entire year pulled them from the public school and did the online school. So we set up an online school program in both of our centers. But as you know, as you've heard, I'm sure there's a lot of connectivity problems. There were a lot of issues happening and um, the children just, they couldn't even log on. Today is a little bit better. And, um, but we still have parents who do not want to send their children to school, even though the schools are going to be opening on Monday. Um, but will we still have the virtual schoolhouse or are we still going to have Boise online school? That's kind of up in the air. We don't know. So we're, we just don't know. Let's talk a little bit about that uncertainty, because even if a family wants to send their child to in-person school, it might be a blended model or they might have to shut down partway through the fall because of another outbreak. And we've talked a lot about that uncertainty on the program as far as it affects schools and families. But how is that uncertainty affecting daycare center owners and your ability to look forward several months into the future? So what I think, you know, a lot of us, we talk to each other through different avenues. And one of the things that we're concerned about is if we do, if the children, they do attend public school and they do the AB schedules, um, having them come back, is it safe for our center? And this is where I think a lot of us are struggling. Um, you know, again, we're, you know, we do infant through pre-K and, if the children are coming back to our center, we have to figure out how we're keeping the rest of the children safe in here um, and how they're, um, if it's an AB schedule, do we, are we supposed to on Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, go online with them? And then on a new group comes in on Wednesdays and Fridays. And so now we're really double exposing um, and having children, you know, exposed. And we just, that's why I think a lot of us would, this, this is really tough. This is a really tough position that we're in. There's a lot of states that work with the school districts, work with childcare centers, but we don't have that here. We didn't have that. Um, they didn't reach out to individual, you know, childcare centers for us to, to guide us or anything else. We're kind of flying by the seat of our pants, trying to figure it out, making it, 
safe for our families. And so my personal, what I've done is I do long-term goals. Like when COVID first started in March, um, after two weeks of this uncertainty of like, are we closed? Are we open? You know, what, what's the state going to do? And once the governor shut down our school or, or shut down the, the, the state, we made a long-term decision till June anyway. And that was long-term then. It's like, this is what we're doing till June and we're not going to change it. Um, and then in June through when school started, we said, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, our parents appreciated that. And right now we just said, we're going to, we're going to go ahead and open up a, the online school. We're going to do it for the year. But if your child goes to public school, they can't come back, you know, that because we can't have them infect in case, um, the other children. So does that answer your question on that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm curious what you're hearing from your colleagues in rural areas or other parts of the state. Um, they're struggling just exactly the same. We we are all just kind of fi trying to figure it out. Um, it's definitely, I think, northern Idaho right now. It seems the people I've talked to up there, they're really struggling. It's a smaller area, smaller communities, um, smaller centers, a lot of in-home, and um, they seem to be struggling with all of this also and just trying all of us are trying to keep our doors open through all of this and that's the worst part is like are we going to be here next month or in two months and what's going to happen when the children do go back to school and when we have the same questions what happens if they shut down the schools they're in school for two weeks and then what happens if they shut them down again then what what are we going to do um we're kind of, again, we're just kind of flying by the, you know, trying to figure it out. So you alluded to this, you alluded to this a little bit, but from a policy perspective, what could local or state leaders do to maybe help out these daycare centers who are struggling? You know, it's, um, it would be nice if we could partner with more communication, I think is really important. Like right now we don't, we, we kind of don't know. And I know everybody's, Everybody's trying to, to navigate through this pandemic. You know, we've never had this before, but there's the communication as far as um, where are we going? How can you help us? Or how can we help you? Like there's a lot of centers that we have openings right now. We just don't have staffing. So you hear parents go, oh, I can't find a center that has an opening, but we do have openings. And if, if we could get together with our local leaders um, even just city leaders and, um, you know, say, hey, this is what we have open, you know, th these, you can come here to this center. Um, but again, it all goes back now to staffing. So I know we're holding off on enrolling right now. Um, we've pushed parents back, pushed parents back because we need staff. So, and we have to be very careful as child care providers who we hire. We, you know, we, we need people who are um, patient who care for the children and um, are educated. So, right. Well, Robin, hey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
While home is the safest place for many people, that's unfortunately not the case for everyone. Nationwide domestic violence centers have reported an increase in calls since the beginning of the pandemic. And just last week, police arrested two people after the death of a nine-year-old Meridian boy who prosecutors said had been abused and tortured for months. Prosecutors said without school, Emmerich Osuna had no escape from his abusers. In Idaho, that situation is compounded by a 2019 Idaho Supreme Court decision, which prevents officers from making misdemeanor domestic violence arrests if they didn't witness the crime themselves. On Friday, I spoke to Chantel Liskey, executive director of Safe Passage Violence Prevention Center in Coeur d'Alene, about what she and her colleagues are seeing. Chantel, thank you so much for joining us. We're hearing about an increase in domestic violence calls nationwide, but what are you seeing in Coeur d'Alene? Um, we actually have stayed pretty steady, but of the cases that we're seeing, we're seeing um, an increase in the violence that the survivors are experiencing. Um, so there's a lot more lethality factors um, and high-risk cases that are coming in um, to get services. And when you say lethality factors, what do you mean by that? Um, there's a lot of, there's, research around domestic violence and there are certain factors within a relationship that makes the relationship more high risk. Um, and some of those lethality factors are things as strangulation, threats with weapons, um, extreme control, stalking behaviors, those sorts of things are lethality factors. Um, and so when advocates are safety planning, they ask questions around those factors um, and we're seeing a, a lot of strangulation cases. How about child abuse? Um, we have, uh, we, we oversee the Child Advocacy Center um, in Coeur d'Alene, and our numbers have stayed pretty steady, um, and we're anticipating the increase as the, the kiddos go back to school and there's eyes on them. Um, but the same thing in those cases, there, there's um, just really complex issues happening and complex situations, um, and a lot of resource needs and family needs. And when you talk about resource needs and family needs, what sort of uh, things are those? We've had um, many survivors come in who have lost their jobs due to COVID. Um, and so we're helping, you know, pay back rent, make sure their utilities are covered. Um, we've even had to, when there was the toilet paper shortage, just give survivors toilet paper out of our office. Um, they were scared to go to the grocery store. They couldn't find it. Um, and so really having all of those things available for survivors um, has been one of our goals during this. What are the factors and the increases in severity that you're seeing in these cases? Um, I think there's um, a, a lot of strangulation. We've seen threats with weapons, um, uh, th those sorts of factors. And, and when we're talking with advocates about, you know, why we might be seeing this, survivors have plans. Um, they, they are safety planning all of the time. Um, and so maybe their safety plans have shifted because they don't have the financial resources because they lost a job. Um, so they're having to stay longer than they anticipated. They were saving money or putting things away. Um, or maybe the severity of the violence increased so quickly, they're leaving sooner than they thought. And when a survivor leaves, it's one of the most dangerous times for them. Um, and so just everything is shifting and there's so much unplanned um, that I think that's the reason we're seeing what we're seeing. How is the pandemic affecting your ability to respond and help families? Um, 
we stayed completely open during the whole pandemic. So we always had someone in our office available. Our shelter was open. Um, we rolled out a text line because um, we know that the ability to make a voice call was going to be compromised. Um, we also did a, a chat box on our website. So we really tried to increase the community's awareness. However, at the same time, we had to reduce staffing. So we had to pull people out of the office. We had to, you know, really just have direct service staff there. And then our shelter, some in some rooms, we double family. So we didn't have that ability. So we really had to reduce the number of people we could serve at one time. Um, and so that's made it hard. Um, not being able to do one-on-one -on -one counseling, having to do telehealth is just not as personal. Um, and, and people are coming in and telling us really scary, big secrets. Um, and, it, and it's hard to do during a pandemic. Yeah, I, I'm curious too about the Supreme Court decision in 2019 that affected uh, police's ability to make arrests that they didn't actually see an incident happen. Can you talk about how that has compounded your work? Oh, absolutely. Many, many of our, uh, our referrals would come from law enforcement and through the court system. Um, and now we're seeing that the law enforcement don't have the ability to make that arrest. Um, and so we're not seeing those referrals come in. Court is, is via Zoom now. Um, and so that makes it really, really hard to connect with those survivors who maybe there was an arrest. Um, and so when we're looking at our numbers, we see a drastic decrease um, in the number of court referrals, of misdemeanor cases. Um, and then when we finally do get in contact with those survivors, there, there's confusion there. The police responded, why couldn't they do something? Um, and so we're we have, having to safety plan and talk with them about why that happened, what's going on, um, and what we can do to offer safety and services to them. So it's not that there is less domestic violence going on, it's just that you're getting fewer referrals and you have less contact with survivors. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the level of domestic violence isn't changing. Um, the ability for law enforcement to respond, they, they can't respond in the way they did. Um, and once survivors make a call and they don't get a positive response, it, it, sometimes they understand, sometimes they, do, they don't. They won't call again because they think, okay, that wasn't an option. And it probably, the police responded, they couldn't make an arrest. Now their abuser is angry and they're left home with them. And so they're getting bad outcomes from calling law enforcement. And so they're not gonna make that call again. They're gonna safety plan in another way. So as people are listening to the statewide and if somebody is in that situation, what advice would you give to them if they are still in the same house as yeah. their abuser? Um, I would encourage to re reach out to your local community-based advocate program. Um, we're all completely free. We're all completely confidential. Um, and, and I think each of the agencies have looked for ways to increase ways for survivors to reach out to us, adding text lines and hotlines and emails. Um, and so whatever way is safest for a survivor, um, talk with a friend or family member about what's going on in your home and, and safety plan with them. And maybe it's not you that can reach out, but maybe they can reach out on your behalf and ask some questions of that agency. You know, as we head into the colder months, we've heard so many concerns from public health officials that the flu season and everybody being indoors and kids heading back to school is going to exacerbate the public health crisis that we're seeing right now. So as you look ahead to coming months, what sort of contingency plans are you making now to be able to respond? Um, we've continued to look for funding. I think that's been one of our biggest, making sure that we have those resources for survivors. 
because as we go on longer and longer and people still don't have um, can't go back to work and things, making sure we can pay that back rent or whatever they need um, has been one of our, our main concerns. And then looking at the our shelter and our shelter capacity um, as we go into those colder months. Um, so thinking of alternative plans so that when someone does need to come to our shelter, we are absolutely available for them. Um, and kind of the health of our staff, just making sure that we're, we're staying on top of um, their safety and their um, mental well-being because this has been tough on them hearing these stories and being on the front lines every day. Um, so just kind of checking in with staff and we, we have a rotating schedule to where once someone's been in the office for a while doing direct service, we switch it out and put someone else in. So really being intentional in the way that we administer services. If you could make any sort of policy or funding changes that would really benefit your work and the work of other advocates across the state, what would those changes be? I think the the number one thing that we've thought about is that is the Clark decision um, and having that ability to arrest on misdemeanor cases. It's a huge impact for survivors. Um, I think that's one of the, the most important for us in this moment. Um, and then direct funding for community-based advocacy programs. Um, it's we're kind of always scrambling and fundraising and looking for ways to fill gaps with flexible funding because survivors needs are so unique um, that more flexible funding going into community-based programs to to fill those needs for survivors would be really really helpful all right chantelle thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me if you are the victim of domestic violence, you can contact the Idaho Care Line at 211 or call the 24-hour Idaho Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-669-3176. For updated COVID-19 analysis and numbers throughout the week, make sure you follow Idaho Reports on Twitter and Facebook. And be sure to subscribe to the Idaho Reports podcast on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.